Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about Mahatma Gandhi, who I'm sure you've heard of, a very, very famous figure in 20th century history as a result of his philosophy of non-violent resistance as he campaigned for an independent and self-governing India. However, Gandhi's story is a lot longer and a lot more interesting than just that. I mean, it's so long, in fact, that we're going to, we're going to split, it, split it into two parts and, uh, and talk about half of his life this week and then the, the, the back half next week. Um, and you might be surprised to learn that much of the first half of his life wasn't even spent in India. Today's episode isn't about Indian independence at all, um, because uh, in the first half of his life, Gandhi spent two decades campaigning for the rights of Indians in South Africa, of all places. Now, Gandhi, of course, he's famous as a civil rights campaigner, political activist, nationalist leader. Uh, he played a pivotal role in, in not just the history of India, really, but also he had a huge impact on world history, on world politics, on, on political geography today uh, more broadly with his, uh, with obviously, this, this philosophy of a very strict nonviolence leading him throughout a, a, a huge career that spanned many, many decades. He was a champion of the Indian people everywhere. Uh, he stood up to the, the British authorities in his unceasing quest to secure peace and happiness for his compatriots, whether it was protesting the racist treatment they received in South Africa or marching with his followers to pursue independence in India. Gandhi, he spent his entire life in pursuit of these goals. And it might surprise you to learn that for such a famous and high-profile political leader, he started out in life, Gandhi did, as a painfully, impossibly shy young man. He was terrified of public, spe uh, public speaking, extremely conflict-averse. And today we'll get across how he sort of transformed, I guess, into a man who could stand up to not just, you know, his political opponents, but the might of the British Empire and how he helped, helped, uh, helped to, you know, as I say, shape the modern world in, in forging an independent India. But we'll, we'll talk about that part next week. Anyway, this week we're going to talk about his younger years, his travels, his, his life in South Africa, how strongly the time that he spent in South Africa, how strongly that impacted him in later life uh, before ultimately his return to India. That's for next week. We'll talk about uh, how he became a high-profile leader in India who inspired countless followers to join him in peacefully resisting British rule. But for now... We'll kick things off at the first half of his life story. Plenty of alert listeners have suggested that I talk about Gandhi on the show, so thanks very much to people like uh, Alex Weeks and Sam DeWolf. Thanks. Uh, cheers very much to the both of you. Good on you. But as ever, so much to get across here today, so let's get into it. Here's the story of Mahatma Gandhi. Off we go. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way, all the way back to the 2nd of October, 1869, the date on which Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi was born. Now, uh, he's known today, obviously, as Mahatma Gandhi, but that wasn't his name when he was born, and also it wasn't his name when he died. It wasn't his name at any point. Mahatma isn't a name. It's a title. It's an honorific. It roughly translates to great soul. Um, and look, there's still some debate as to exactly when and how uh, Gandhi picked up this this title. It's thought to be sometime around 1914, 1916, um, but it wasn't his name, uh, as it's not a name. And also, uh, a lot of his followers didn't refer to him as 
Gandhi or Mahatma or anything else like that, they called him Bapu, which is a, a Gujarati term for father. It sort of means like dad or, or papa, a, a sort of a nice thing that you might call a father figure. And I mean, with very good reason, this bloke is today largely considered one of the one of the fathers of, of the Indian nation. So whatever you want to call him, Mahatma Gandhi or Mohandas or Bapu, whatever it was, he was born, as I say, 2nd of October, 1869. Um, and his mum was a woman whose name was Putlibai Gandhi and her husband Karamchand Uttamchand Gandhi. And Karamchand was the chief minister of a small region in Western India known as Porbandar State, uh, where, the, where the city of Porbandar was, and for that matter still is, uh, it's still found there. Um, and it's a very popular uh, tourist destination. You can go and visit there. It's in the modern Indian state of Gujarat. Um, and as you might imagine, very popular with, with tourists because, again, it is the birthplace of one of the most important figures in Indian history. Anyway, at the time of Gandhi's birth, uh, India was, of course, not an independent nation. It was under the control of Britain as part of the British Raj. Now, technically speaking, it wasn't a colony. Technically speaking, it was a completely separate nation altogether uh, that shared a monarch with Britain, although in reality, I mean, this is a a largely uh, superficial distinction to make here because in practice, India and and the British Raj, it was was run like a colony. It, It was essentially, in everything but name, a colony of Great Britain. Um, the British directly governed certain areas, while other areas, like Porbandar State, for example, had Indian rulers, that, but these people were still ultimately answerable to British authority. So there was very, very little autonomy or self-rule offered to the Indian Indian people under, under British. Again, I'm going to say colonial rule because that's essentially what it was in practice. Anyway, putly by uh, Gandhi's mum, she was Karamchand's fourth husband, and Gandhi was her fourth child, her youngest. He had two older brothers and an older, older sister. And his parents seemed to have been pretty good people. Um, his old man, despite lacking a formal education, he managed very well as a senior politician. He managed the conflicting agendas of Indian aristocrats and, and their British overlords. And Gandhi's mum was a, a, a devout Vaishnavist uh, Hindu, right? Uh, someone who, who took her, religious, her religion very, very seriously indeed uh, and instilled many of her religious values in young Gandhi, uh, things like moderation and piety and honesty and, and religious tolerance. And we're largely speaking going to be focusing on Gandhi as a political leader rather than a religious leader because that's what he's best known to history as, a political leader. But let me tell you that religion was such an integral part of Gandhi and his life and the things that he did that it's probably quite accurate to describe him as a religious leader in addition to being a political leader. Certainly, uh, his religion was a massive part of, uh, it was the foundation of all of his political activism. It was uh, the basis of, of, of the moral approach that he took to the struggles that he engaged himself in, and also had a huge influence on, on many other parts of his life. For, for instance, his his vegetarianism, his fasting, the hunger strikes that he went on, uh, as well as, of course, the, the philosophy of ahimsa, which prohibits the harm of any other living thing. So big, big part of, uh, of his upbringing. Anyway, as a young boy, Gandhi loved old stories about legendary Indian heroes like King Harish Chandra. And in later life, Gandhi wrote about how these how, how all these myths and legends that he heard as a kid were so influential on him as he too grew up to become an Indian hero. Anyway, when, he's, uh, when his dad tr- was transferred to the chief ministership of, of Rajkot, a nearby region, Gandhi moved there with the rest of his family. He started school at the age of nine. And look, I'll be honest, he was not a particularly standout student. He was very shy, uh, didn't have too many mates, didn't like sports or games, generally just quite bookish. Um, and at the age of 13, he got married, which was customary at the time. Um, it was an arranged marriage. 
to a 14-year-old girl whose name was Kastaba Makanji Kapadia. And the two kids, after they got married, they didn't live with each other. And it, it's, it's look, it's pretty interesting hearing what Gandhi had to say about his own wedding. It's sort of strange for us to think about kids at that age getting married. But again, it was part of the, the customs and cultures of, of this part of the world at the time. Um, but Gandhi, I mean, he, he wrote about his perspective on the wedding years and years later. He said, as we didn't know much about marriage, for us, it only meant wearing new clothes, eating sweets and playing with relatives. So not the sort of, you know, fairy tale romance wedding you might expect. But then again, he was 13. Um, eventually, of course, in, in due course, the two became um, uh, closer, shall we say. And when Gandhi was just 16, Casturba uh, gave birth to their first child, who tragically only lived for a couple of days. And this was not long after Gandhi's father had also passed away. So it was a rough old time for our mate Gandhi, the poor bastard here. He seems to have had a period of teenage rebellion around this time as well. I mean, as you do, you know, he, he went out, he got, he got into trouble, he nicked stuff here and there, he tried smoking. And worst of all, when it came to his upbringing, he ate meat. Now, this was a, a pretty serious religious transgression for him and, and not something that he did really ever again throughout his entire life, I don't think. But he did come down after this rebellion. He stuck to his schooling and he graduated in 1887 at the age of 18 before enrolling in a regional university. Unfortunately, however, he ultimately dropped out and returned to Porpenter with the rest of his family because university, it hadn't worked out for him. He'd found it particularly challenging to study in English rather than in his native language, uh, Gujarati. But he still wanted to become better educated, which was a hallmark of Gandhi's life. He, he was, I mean, he, he had a constant need for self-improvement. And so he went home to his family and he discussed what, what his next options might be. He wanted to become a doctor, but his family's religion uh, forbade this, essentially, because it abhorred vivisection, not just of humans, but animals of, of, of all kinds. So that sort of precluded him from getting into medicine. But his family was actually quite keen for him to instead follow in his old man's footsteps and, be and become a politician, get into politics, just like his dad had done. However, I mean, you know, his dad had managed to get all the way to a chief ministership with, without anything like a formal education. This, this wasn't really the case anymore. Couldn't really do that. Times had changed. And so uh, Gandhi would need to further his studies and, and get something like a law degree in order to become a politician. And, um, you know, after seeking out the advice of friends and family and talking about what he wanted to do, he was advised that if he wanted to pursue such a career, become a politician, the best way to do it was to become a lawyer, become a barrister. And the best place to do that would be in Britain itself. Now, around this time, right, Kasturba, uh, his wife had just given birth to another child, Haralal, who I'm happy to say survived infancy and, and went on to, to become an adult. Um, so both Gandhi's wife and his mum are a bit iffy about him heading halfway around the world to London to study law because, I mean, you know, his wife's just given birth. He's got, a, he's got a brand new baby. And on top of that, there are some other concerns that his mum has about him going and living in Britain that, that I mean, we'll come to in, in just a second. But it was his brother who was also a lawyer who said, no, mate, listen, you've got to go over there. You've got to get this degree. This is the best way for you to move forward here. Um, and his mind was made up, ultimately, with, with the support of his brothers. His mind was made up. And so he came to his mum and he said, listen, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to Britain. I'm going to become a barrister and I'll come back. But his mum didn't like this idea. Didn't like this idea at all. She was worried that he would go over there, become corrupted by decadent Western living, and, and that he wouldn't stay true to his religious principles. And so, in order to persuade his mum, Gandhi swore a vow in front of her 
that while he was in Britain, he would abstain from sleeping with other women, which, you know, reasonable. Sure. I, I, I mean, you're married. I would take that as read, to be honest. But also from drinking alcohol, which is, you know, fair enough. Stay off the jars. A good idea, generally speaking, if you're wanting to get through your studies and, st- and, and stay sensible. But also to abstain from eating meat. So, I mean, when... I mean, just think about this poor bloke. He's moving to Britain. He's moving to England, right? And forbidding himself from eating meat means no delicious British delicacies like blood pudding or scotch eggs. I mean, think about the sacrifice that this bloke was making. But look, I mean, you know, we can we can have a giggle about it, but these, these vows were no joke. I already talked about how Gandhi's mum instilled her values about truth and honesty and, and all the rest of it in him. So him taking an oath like this was very, very serious indeed. And, you know, while you might think it's a bit weird that he swore to not eat meat, his vow to stick to vegetarian food was actually very important, not just to his hyper-religious mum, but also in his development as a person, as a young man. It ended up bringing about a very important change for Gandhi once he got to London. We'll come to that in just a second. Anyway, with these solemn vows duly made, Gandhi, he made preparations to leave his family behind and travel to London to study law and become a barrister. And he left in August 1888. He was just 18 years old as he left, uh, headed to Bombay, now now Mumbai, obviously, uh, and then got on a ship to Britain where he enrolled in, uh, in London at University College. And he was a very diligent student this time around. He took it very seriously, but he had to overcome a, a different hurdle altogether in order to succeed as a barrister. It wasn't anything to do with his, his, uh, you know, his scholastic efforts or his academics. They weren't the problem. It was actually his personal disposition. Because I mentioned before, he was shy. He was quiet and reserved. And in order to make it as a barrister, he had to overcome this. He had to overcome his non-confrontational nature, his aversion to conflict and arguments and standing up to people. And so he did things like joined a public speaking group in an effort to, you know, try to find a bit more uh, a bit more courage when speaking in front of a crowd, speaking in front of people he didn't know. But in working through his shyness, it was actually his vegetarianism that helped him the most, right? It was his vegetarianism that forced him into his first major interpersonal conflict, as well as opening his world to a range of political and philosophical ideas that would greatly influence him throughout his life. Here's what happened. It is, as you may or may not know, extremely difficult to find a decent meal in Britain as it is, without being a vegetarian, but as Gandhi had sworn not to eat meat while he was over there in Britain, his options were even more limited than usual, and the food that he ate while he was away was even worse than the usual British fare, which is really saying something, let me tell you. I mean, this is a nation for whom the baked bean seems to be the pinnacle of haute cuisine. My grandfather, who was born in England, he used to take, and this is not a joke, he used to take tongue sandwiches to work with him every day. That is a tongue between two pieces of bread. So poor Gandhi, I mean, he's buggered. He's eating numbingly bland vegetarian food and he decides that he's just got to find himself some proper tucker. So he joined, therefore, the London Vegetarian Society, a group of Well, I mean, a group of vegos, obviously. And remember, this is the late 19th century. Vegetarianism was very unorthodox. It was not a very it was not a very common way to live your life, particularly in Europe. So as a result, 
the society was filled with all sorts of people who didn't mind going off the beaten path on on a philosophical level. Gandhi met anti-industrialists, he met socialists and ascetics and theosophists and feminists and all sorts of other idealists who were considered political radicals at the time. And these people and the ideas that they discussed at the society, they profoundly impacted young Gandhi, who, I mean, remember, he's barely more than a teenager at this stage. The Vegetarian Society helped to bring Gandhi out of his shell like never before, and he became more and more involved in the society, ultimately being elected to its executive committee, which is quite a coup for him. And it was there while he was on the committee that this very important moment in his personal development took place, when he came into conflict with another bloke on the committee about the expulsion of a society member. Arnold Hills was the president of the society, and uh, he and Gandhi got on very well. Uh, Gandhi was, I wouldn't say a protege of, of Hills, but certainly uh, Gandhi looked up to Hills as, as something of a mentor, perhaps. Um, and the two of them came into disagreement about the expulsion or the potential expulsion of a bloke whose name was Thomas Allenson. Thomas Allenson uh, publicly supported uh, birth control and uh, had very outspoken views that uh, certainly rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And look, Gandhi didn't necessarily agree with all of Allenson's views, but all the same, he disagreed with Hills wanting to expel him from the Vegetarian Society, believing that his views outside of vegetarianism weren't relevant when it came to his membership of the society. Now, Gandhi was still painfully shy, very conflict-averse at this point in his life. But believe it or not, he stood up to Hills, with whom, as I say, he had previously gotten on very well. But he stood up to Hills and defended Allenson's right to these radical views. And look, it might not sound like much, but it was a very difficult thing for Gandhi to do at a young age as such a shy bloke. And it marked the first time that he stood his ground on an issue. As it, it, it saw him challenge authority and overcome his strong aversion to conflict. Well, to a point, he didn't quite manage to seal the deal. Um, despite taking a stand against Hills, Gandhi still couldn't summon the courage to read the arguments that he'd written in defence of Allenson out at the to the society at a meeting while they were discussing the expulsion of Allenson and. Allenson did end up, he did end up being expelled. And look, thankfully, this didn't drive a wedge between Hills and Gandhi. They still continued to get on very well. But it was a very important occurrence, all the same, in showing that Gandhi was fighting through his shyness and conflict-averse nature and was on the road to his destiny as a world-changing political figure, known for, of course, resistance to established authority. And if you could go back and see the bloke there, you know, stuttering and stammering over his notes at the London Vegetarian Society meeting there, you'd never look at him and think, geez, this bloke's going to go on and forge a nation based on the power of his ability to resist authority. But that's what happened. So this, plus Gandhi's exposure to all of these political radicals and their dangerous ideas in the Vegetarian Society, It meant that his vow to abstain from eating meat ended up being really, really important, fundamental to his development as a young man. Anyway, Gandhi successfully completed his studies. He was called to the bar in mid-1891 at the age of 21, and he became a qualified barrister. And he headed home to India pretty quickly, almost immediately, but he returned to terrible news because while he was away, his mother had died and his family, in an effort to not disrupt his studies while he was in London, his family 
had decided not to tell him until he returned. Now, again, of course, he was heartbroken, absolutely, absolutely devastated, as, of course, as he would be. But nonetheless, he did his best to establish himself as a barrister in, in Bombay, again, today's Mumbai. Uh, although I have to say, he did not have very much success. He wasn't able to properly cross-examine people in the stand. He couldn't stand up to people or assert himself in the courtroom. His shyness was still getting in the way. And so he ended up giving up on, on being a barrister in a courtroom and instead worked as a lawyer in an office. And this suited him much better. And he, did, he, he worked in this way until 1893 when he was offered a job as part of an ongoing legal dispute with, uh, to do with a shipping company in South Africa. There was someone uh, involved in the shipping company who knew uh, Gandhi over in, in India and picked him up, sailed him over to South Africa and, and tried to get him on board, well, succeeded in getting him on board in, in trying to resolve this legal dispute. He took the job after hearing that he'd be paid pretty well for it, uh, despite it meaning that he would have to spend another year away from India and his family. But little did he know that he would remain in South Africa for the next two decades. And it was there in South Africa that he would become a civil rights campaigner, a social activist, and ultimately a political leader. But let's not get ahead of ourselves here. Gandhi travelled to South Africa in 1893. And as soon as he arrived, I'm sorry to say he was subjected to the horrific racism that has been such an unfortunate large part of South Africa's history. Gandhi was shocked. Uh, at, at the time, he considered himself British first and Indian second. Um, but as he travelled to another British-controlled part of the world, another part of the world that was ostensibly the British Empire, uh, his Britishness didn't count for anything. He was subjected to daily racial discrimination and abuse, As I mean, as were all people of colour in South Africa at the time. He suffered enormously as a result of the colour of his skin. Uh, he, like all people of colour, he was banned from sharing public transport with white people. He was beaten savagely when he refused to move uh, from a stagecoach with white passengers. Uh, people of colour weren't allowed to use public footpaths and, and walkways, and Gandhi received another beating for walking along one of these footpaths as, as he was kicked into the gutter by a policeman. Uh, he was ordered to remove the turban that he wore by an actual court, no less. And uh, in perhaps the most significant act of racial discrimination that he suffered when it comes to Gandhi in a historical sense, he was forcibly thrown off a train when he refused to move from his seat in the first class carriage. And today, there is a statue of Gandhi at the station where this happened, at the train station in the South African city of Peter Maritzburg. Uh, and this statue memorialises an event that Gandhi described like this. He said, My active nonviolence began from that date. So this was a huge turning point in Gandhi's life, in his career, in all the things that he did. It began with the horrific treatment that he was subjected to in South Africa and his decision to take a stand. It seems that after moving to South Africa and after having, after having been treated so disgracefully, just like all other people of colour were in South Africa at the time, Gandhi finally began to once and for all overcome his shyness, his aversion to strife and conflict, and he began to stand up for himself and, perhaps more importantly, to stand up for others. The court case that he was involved with, the reason he'd moved to South Africa in the first place, it wrapped up in, uh, in 1894, and you might think that he'd be on the first boat back home to, uh, to India, but no. 
He didn't really have much of a professional reason to remain in South Africa, but remain he did, let me tell you, and for good bloody reason too. There were plenty of other Indians in South Africa, and Gandhi was appalled by the way they were treated, especially as they were all supposed to be subjects of the British crown. So before going to South Africa, Gandhi had seemed to have a level of support for Britain. Uh, He seemed to be, you know, again, a a reasonably proud British uh, subject and didn't really object to the position of India and its people within the British Empire. But now, as his eyes were open to some of the horrific treatment that, you know, supposedly British subjects were subjected to um, and, and, and saw that the British actively promoted and took part in disgraceful and open racist discrimination and mistreatment of Indians, Gandhi's perspective undertook a a pretty radical change and he decided to stay in South Africa and do what he could to help out his fellow Indians and fight against the bigotry and discrimination that they and he suffered on a daily basis. Now, I do have to mention, um, as we begin to talk about Gandhi and his his fight against racism, I do have to mention that while Gandhi's efforts in in fighting this this bigotry and this racist discrimination in South Africa, you know, obviously very admirable, um, his efforts were, to put it diplomatically, um, quite focused because Gandhi's concerns didn't, to begin with at least, didn't extend to the native African population of South Africa. Um, And he does seem to have considered Africans to have been inferior to Indians. Now, this isn't nice, but it's true. His view does seem to have evolved over time, which is good. But to begin with, at least, one of the platforms that he based his arguments on was deploring how Indians were being treated as badly as Africans and just how unfair that was. So not the greatest way to wage a campaign for racial equality, but as with most people, Gandhi was complex, he was flawed, and while he did a lot of good, a huge amount of good in the world, he wasn't perfect, not by any means. But history should take all this into account and present these stories warts and all And so I think it's worth mentioning that Gandhi wasn't the -the dyed-in-the-wall anti-racist that some people may think he was, and he did at least at some some points during his life harbour quite discriminatory perspectives as well. Anyway, his support for the plight of Indian people in South Africa, it meant that he remained behind even after his legal work was concluded. And let me tell you, he paid a very high price for his determination to improve things for his compatriots. In 1894, he fought against legislation that would deprive Indians of the right to vote in South Africa. And ultimately, he wasn't successful in stopping the passage of the legislation. He did, however, manage to make a name for himself as a civil rights campaigner. And as part of his efforts to advance the position of Indians in South Africa, in 1894, he founded the Natal Indian Congress, Natal being the name of the South African province in which he lived. And with the power of this institution behind him and the support of its followers, he campaigned ceaselessly on behalf of downtrodden Indians throughout South Africa. And this was, as I've said, a monumental shift in Gandhi's demeanour his personality, his behaviour. Gone was the shy law student who couldn't speak before a crowd. This transformation, it was as sudden as it was profound. Out of nowhere, this bloke was a leading figure in the Indian community of South Africa, unifying and organising people to resist the racist authorities. 
He spread word of the awful treatment of Indians in South Africa around the world, and most importantly to Britain itself, where newspapers reported on the disgracefully unequal treatment of people who were, after all, British subjects. However, as I say, he paid a heavy price for his activism, because whenever he appeared in public, white people would hurl abuse at him, they'd spit on him, they'd assault him, and in in one instance, they almost succeeded in lynching him in 1897. In 1896, he returned to India briefly to pick pick up Kastaba and his two children and then returned to South Africa with them. And after landing, as I say, he was almost lynched by the white mob that had assembled to meet him as he landed. However, and it won't surprise you to learn this given Gandhi's reputation, he refused to prosecute his attackers and instead focused on his continued campaign for, for, for racial equality for Indians. And he continued this campaign uh, until the outbreak of the Boer War in 1899, when the British fought the Boer Republics in uh, a region that I guess today you would have to describe as Northeast South Africa. Uh, Anyway, uh, it was at this point in 1899 where Gandhi showed just how devoted he was to his principles as a political leader, because he was a leader amongst a political minority that was claiming that they should receive equal treatment as British subjects. Well, Britain had just gone to war. So what did he do with the people that that were following him? Gandhi didn't attempt to have his cake and eat it too. And he said that as he and other Indians were campaigning as British subjects, they had a duty to help the British war effort against the Boers. So he mobilised over a thousand Indians, a thousand volunteers he got together to act as an ambulance corps. And as the fighting raged, Gandhi himself was out there with the rest of them, carrying stretchers, taking injured soldiers out to field hospitals. So he put his money and really his life where his mouth was, you have to say, as he ran about in the battlefield himself helping the wounded. And the Indian, uh, Indian Ambulance Corps was also active during the Bambatha Rebellion when, the, when British troops mercilessly shot Zulu warriors, most of whom were armed with little more than spears and shields. Not the sort of war you generally want to be associated with, you'd think. But Gandhi was there all the same as a British subject, carrying stretches about and aiding the wounded as best he could. However, even this open support of British war efforts did very little to improve the situation of Indians in South Africa. And even as the Boers capitulated and as their republics were absorbed into the British Empire, Indians faced just as much mistreatment and discrimination as before. In 1906, the South African government instituted legislation where Indian and Chinese inhabitants of South Africa would have to register with the government. So more discrimination, more bigotry, more mistreatment. And as you might expect, Gandhi wasn't going to stand for it. For the first time in his career, he led his people with organised mass non-violent resistance. And this became something of a hallmark of his leadership style as an activist. Gandhi had read extensively and his political, his religious, his philosophical position, uh, reading the works of, of people like Leo Tolstoy and, and, and countless others, he had arrived at this, this political philosophy of nonviolent resistance. And it became the defining factor of his historical legacy. And of course, it was, it's played a, criti- a critically important role in civil rights campaigns throughout history, both, both before and after Gandhi. But Gandhi instructing his followers to employ it here in refusing to accept this legislation, refusing to sacrifice or compromise their dignity and self-respect in South Africa, it was the beginning of something huge for Gandhi as he established his approach to political conflict. 
Gandhi's nonviolent resistance and, and non-cooperation, it became known as satyagraha, right, or, or devotion to truth. And uh, it involved accepting the consequences of resisting laws, uh, laws like mandatory, mandatory registration. This meant that many Indians paid dearly for their resistance. They were issued steep fines. Some of them were even locked up. But people followed Gandhi as he led them to peacefully resist their mistreatment despite their suffering. And suffer they did. As the years passed and as the movement spread and more people became involved, penalties for this civil disobedience became harsher and harsher. Thousands of Indians were beaten or flogged or locked up. Some were even killed. But they continued to resist the government under Gandhi's leadership. They continued to engage in non-cooperation. Some even began to strike from their workplaces And Gandhi himself was imprisoned on more than one occasion. And it's not going to be the last time, let me tell you. It took a long, long time, years, in fact. But the plight of Indian people in South Africa ultimately became so well known around the world due to Gandhi and his followers sticking to Satyagraha no matter what, that South Africa started to look really, really bad as a result, particularly in the eyes of their British overlords. As they harsh treatment of these nonviolent protesters ramped up, ultimately, Britain had to intervene. And under pressure from both Britain and India, the South African government backed down and in 1914 began to negotiate with Gandhi. Gandhi's tireless work over the last 20 years had been, well, look, I'm not... uh, I want to say it had been a success, and certainly it was a success at the time, but the the hesitation I have here is that it was not a lasting or sustainable success. A compromise was reached to increase the political rights and the the civil standing of of Indians in South Africa, and Gandhi was hailed as a hero of the Indian people in South Africa. He'd established himself uh, as one of the world's preeminent civil rights activists and, uh, and, and Indian advocates. And so when Gopal Krishna Gokhale, another leading Indian nationalist, asked Gandhi to come back to India and aid him in seeking an independent nation, Gandhi decided to return to his homeland after his successes in South Africa. But before we begin the next chapter of Gandhi's story, it is worth noting that sadly, as I say, the victory that Gandhi and the other Indians enjoyed in South Africa was ultimately a very short one indeed. Because, as you probably know, uh, South Africa's past is mired in systemic and openly institutionalised racism. In 1948, apartheid was officially established, which racially segregated the entire nation, and it only ended in 1991. So despite Gandhi's tenacious determination to improve the lot of Indians in South Africa, it would be a long, long time before they had official legal equality. However, Gandhi's campaigning in South Africa did have a lasting effect on something else, even if it didn't have a lasting effect in the racial politics of South Africa. It affected him as a person, as a political leader, as an agitator, as a campaigner and an activist. Gandhi returned to India in 1915 as a popular and well-known public figure, famous for his philosophy of nonviolent resistance, his persuasive skills, his mastery of effective political campaigning. And so the Indian independence movement picked up a huge asset when Gandhi agreed to come home and join their cause, let me tell you. But what happened after he returned to India? 
Well, I'm sorry to say, you'll have to wait until next week to find out. You'll hear all about how Gandhi fought tirelessly for an independent India, what his campaigns of non-violent resistance to British rule looked like, and of course, their ultimate result. We'll be concluding the story of Gandhi next week, so join me then to hear about how India ultimately gained its independence with the help of Mahatma Gandhi. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the first half of the story of Mahatma Gandhi. And I do hope you'll come back and join me for the second half next week as we talk about his involvement and leadership of the Indian independence movement, which ultimately was successful, although it's not quite as simple as that, as we'll find out uh, next week. And uh, for those of you who don't want to wait a week, and for those of you who are interested in finding out the rest of the story now, I've got some good news for you. The, the back half of this story is available right now on the Patreon, patreon.com slash history. If you want to sign up and gain early access to shows, it doesn't cost you very much, and it's a great way to support the show. Uh, the second episode is already available there for you to listen to. Otherwise, of course, you can uh, you can chill out for a week, and it'll be up uh, in a week's time, so no worries there. But while we're talking about ways to support the show, of course, it's not just Patreon. You can also grab some merch. Uh, I'm in talks with people about uh, updating the merch shop. It's going to be a pretty major update i would have thought here so uh hopefully i have some news to share before the end of the year but if you want to grab some of the merch that's available now certainly you can do that uh the best way to, to find the site is of course to go to halfhousehistory.net and follow the links to the merch shop and at that website of course you can also find ways to contact the show if you've got a topic suggestion like this one here i'd love to hear it um we have for the last couple of weeks or months, really been focusing on some pretty broad and big topics in history. Um, it's been very good, but uh, I am kind of itching to get across some silly and ridiculous history once again. So if you've got uh, something that would fit the tone of the show from, you know, before we started talking about all these uh, these massively famous figures, I do want to hear about it. So let me know. Head over to the website and uh, and get across it. Send me some uh, send me some ideas and I'll have a look into it. But that is that for another week. And usually, of course, we wrap... Oh, sorry. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people about, about whom you feel largely ambivalent, of course. Um, but normally we wrap up the show with a question post on Reddit. But this one, I actually, I wanted to use this opportunity to tell you a, a, a story uh, that has something to do with Gandhi. Well, not really Gandhi himself, but um, Gandhi's depiction in a popular video game, Civilization. I'm a huge fan of Civ, as you know, as probably won't surprise you. It's a... It's a story about building a civilization through all of human history and obviously I love history so I do love to play Civ but there is there's this story that gets told about Civ in uh, and the first the first time it was ever released civilization 1 went out to civilization 6 civilization 1 when it was released you could play as Gandhi right you could play as uh, he would he would lead the indian uh, indian civilization and obviously he's a very peaceful bloke Gandhi uh, his sort of leadership profile I guess the way that he was programmed meant that he had a um uh, a sort of an aggression level, I guess you could call it, because all of you know, if you play as if you're playing against Genghis Khan, he's going to be a lot more likely to uh, invade you compared to Gandhi, who probably won't. His aggression level was set to the lowest possible value, one, right? Whereas others were, you know, nine, ten, uh, 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 some say all the way up to eleven or twelve. Anyway, the problem with that was, you know, for thousands of years of human history as Gandhi led the Indians uh, he he wouldn't attack you he wouldn't attack he just was never very aggressive he'd only ever to fight, fight defensive wars until the advent of democracy and when democracy comes along and when a government uh, or a civilization uh, adopts 
democracy as a form of government in the original civilization, it lowers that that leader profile's aggression uh, factor by minus two. So if you're playing as Genghis Khan and you're, or sorry, if you're playing against Genghis Khan and the AI is saying that his aggression is 12, once he takes democracy, he'll, he'll go down to 10. But once Gandhi takes democracy, he goes down from one to minus one, which would then overflow because the numbers couldn't handle minus numbers. It would overflow to instead the maximum possible, which wasn't just 12, it was 255. So as soon as you entered the modern age and as soon as nukes and all that sort of stuff became available and as soon as India became a democracy in Civilization One, Gandhi would just start nuking everything that moved because his aggression factor was 255, where someone like Genghis Khan would be 12. So this is a very old and very well-known story about civilization. And unfortunately, it's completely false, man. And I didn't know that until I looked it up to actually looked up the details to actually share with you in this episode. I thought it was true, man. And imagine my disappointment to find out find out that it wasn't. But even though it's not true, the developers of Civilization have leapt on this video game urban legend, right? That was just made up by someone years ago. And they've incorporated later versions of Gandhi into Civilization in 4, 5, and 6 as someone who just loves nuking people because it's kind of funny. And so even though Gandhi is one of the most peaceful leaders in Civilization 6, when you play against him, uh, you know, he never declares a, a, an aggressive war or anything like that, but he just loves nukes. 70% of the time he's given a hidden trait where he will try to build and stockpile as many nukes as possible, even if he doesn't use them. And he'll respect you more as a leader if you play against him, if you also do the same thing. There are achievements named after this. There is all sorts of stuff in the culture of civilization, the video game, about Gandhi loving nukes. And it all came back to this unfortunately apocryphal story about the stack overflow or the, the numbers not uh, not being coded correctly in Civilization One, which... I'm so sorry to say, just isn't true. Because I was hoping to end this episode with a bang, with a funny story about civilization. But instead, it ends with a whimper, with me going, well, here's a funny story. What wasn't even true? So, see you next week, I guess. <laughs> <laughs>